Part 4 From Heart to Heart Communication Skills Today, Luang Po's wider reputation rests above all on his ability to communicate the Dhamma. His Dhamma talks circle the world in print, on screens, and as audible files on a variety of modern devices. Throughout his life of teaching, he modelled two qualities of the Kalyana Mitta, specifically concerned with communication skills. Firstly, the ability to speak effectively, to get through to people, to counsel and admonish. And secondly, the ability to explain profound matters with clarity and accuracy. From his earliest days as a teacher, even before the establishment of Wat Pong, Luang Po's gift for articulating the teachings had been clearly apparent. He became highly skilled in adapting his discourses to the needs of his audience, adept at using everyday objects to illustrate profound topics in simple terms. The Buddha maintained that the Dhamma should be taught in a way that clarified, convinced, roused and gladdened the mind of the listener. Those who listened to Luang Po teaching over a long period would assert that those four words summed it up very well. The Isan culture into which Luang Po was born has always delighted in the skillful use of language. He grew up in an environment in which the ability to speak eloquently, dexterously and with humour was prized on every level of society. Isan folk music is full of wit and invention. When Luang Po was young, contests that involved the composition of extempore rhymes were a feature of harvest time. Given these conditions, it might be said that Luang Po's speaking skills were not especially unusual. It was the use to which he put them that set him apart. The unrehearsed and vernacular dhamma talks he gave retained the energy and spark of folk oratory in a religious context formerly dominated by stiff and mannered text-based sermons. Luang Po was not the first monk in Thailand to teach in this way. The down-to-earth style of discourse was one of the characteristic features of the teachings given by the great Luang Po Man and his disciples as they wandered through the Isan countryside. Luang Po felt himself an inheritor of this tradition and became, perhaps, its finest exponent. Transcriptions of Luang Po's Dhamma talks have been read and treasured by huge numbers of Thai Buddhists. Translations of the transcriptions have made them available in many other languages. Nevertheless, as written records of oral teachings are necessarily restricted to content, they can only provide a one-dimensional record of the magic and emotional power of the originals. The 200 or so audio files salvaged from old cassette recordings provide a more complete experience. In them, Luang Po's voice is utterly compelling. The natural, unassailable authority of his voice augmented by a palpable benevolence. The vast majority of the transcribed talks are from the last four years of his teaching career. By this time he was, in many ways, an old man, his body prematurely aged. There is a pronounced paternal tone to these talks and an ever-present undercurrent of humour and warmth. The key feature of Luang Po's Dhamma talks was their spontaneity. 
Luang Po maintained that Dhamma talks could not and should not be prepared beforehand. Although he would have a general theme in his mind when he began to talk, it might soon be discarded as his mind settled into a more fertile groove. He once mentioned to a disciple that sometimes he ascended to the high Dhamma seat and still would have no idea of what he was going to talk about. But, after I finished the Namo invocation and composed my mind, then it comes by itself and starts to flow. Referring to this sense of an unforced flow of Dhamma emerging from within him, he compared it to the speech of a scholar learnt from a book. The Dhamma that comes from the heart flows like water from a spring that never runs dry. But the knowledge that comes from memory is like rainwater in a jar. Once the rainy season is over, it soon comes to an end. In his middle age, Luang Po was still a remarkably vigorous man, and his Dhamma talks reflected that. He would generate an incredible energy as the talk progressed. Ajahn Rungrit recalled that some of the more fiery discourses would confront the defilements of the listeners in such an uncompromising fashion that it would really hurt. You'd be black and blue from the first night. If you couldn't take it, you'd leave within three days. If you stayed, you wouldn't ever want to leave. Occasionally, Lung Po would launch straight into a theme that was on his mind. More usually, he would begin a talk with a few general phrases, a familiar riff, even a meander or two, as he eased himself into the talk, biding time, allowing a theme to emerge by itself, which, within a few seconds, a few minutes, it inevitably did. Then, almost visibly, as if something had clicked into place, the talk would assume a clear trajectory. Gradually, as the power and focus of his words began to crank up inexorably, listeners would feel themselves being swept along by a powerful surge of Dhamma. For newly arrived Western monks, as yet unfamiliar with the language and cultural norms, some of the high-octane Dhamma discourses given in Isan dialect could sound uncomfortably akin to rants. But over time, it would become clear to them that something more profound was taking place. The audience at such talks showed no signs of agitation. Many sat with eyes closed in meditation. Those with eyes open were alert and intent. An Evolution Although Luang Po's Dhamma talks were largely concerned with the universal and timeless truths of the human condition, they were also very much grounded in the time and place in which they were given. Especially in the case of a speaker of Luang Po's gifts, the impromptu stream-of-consciousness style of speaking can allow for a profound symbiosis between speaker and audience. It is this unique element to the talks which is impossible to preserve in transcriptions. On a more mundane level, the power of Luang Po's Dhamma talks may be explained in terms of the classic principles of rhetoric, whereby the audience's positive regard for the speaker must precede and underpin the logic of the talk and its emotional impact. Luang Po's ethos was potent. Not only did he radiate a considerable personal charisma, but he also spoke with an authority derived from his age, his role as abbot, and his position as their teacher.
most importantly of all, he was believed by his audience to be a fully enlightened master. He gave such a firm impression that he was speaking from direct experience rather than from a memory of the texts, that his words would go straight to the hearts of his listeners. For many years, Lung Po gave Dhamma talks almost exclusively in the Isan dialect that was his mother tongue, a language that lends itself easily to oratory and storytelling. But as increasing numbers of people from Bangkok started to make their way to Wat Bapong, Lung Po began speaking in central Thai more and more. It was not a huge leap. Isan and Thai share much of the same vocabulary. However, this similarity is not always immediately obvious, masked by a difference in certain consonants and by the different tones in which the words are pronounced. For example, the high-tone Thai word ron, which means hot, is a low-tone hon in Isan. Initially, occasional lapses into Isan or passages of unusual syntax showed that Luang Po was not completely comfortable speaking in central Thai. These slight glitches disappeared after a few years, but Luang Po's Thai style always retained a distinctive character. Until the end of his life, he always said Michanan, which means otherwise, when he meant Prochanan, or consequently. The slightly modified Isan idioms that appeared in his talks clothed in Thai conveyed an especial freshness and charm. Coinciding with this shift into the Thai language came a move to a less rousing, more reflective style of delivery in Lung Po's discourses. It's debatable to what extent the change was due to the shift of language itself and how much to his physical decline. It was not exactly the case that he'd never spoken in this way before, but now it became the dominant mode. Ajahn Rungrit was one of the monks who enjoyed the new style. You'd listen and feel an exhilaration in the Dhamma, and you'd feel good after the talk was over. If you had any wisdom, you'd learnt a lot because he spoke gently, it was easy on the ear, and so he changed. The basic content of the talks remained the same, but the flavour was better. But whatever changes of tone might have occurred, the primary distinguishing characteristics of Luang Po's Dhamma talks remained constant from his early talks until his last great discourses in the Rains Retreat of 1982. They were delivered using simple language, with a minimum of theory, as a contemporary of Lung Bu Man once put it, as simple as could be, but no simpler. And they employed plentiful similes, using objects and experiences with which the listeners were familiar, to explain the subtle realities of the mind. Occasionally, he would intersperse anecdotes from his own experiences, and from those of his teachers, contemporaries and disciples. This gave his listeners an enjoyable and absorbing experience, rather like reading a book that they couldn't put down. He said that listening to Dhamma talks requires a special attitude. Keep listening, don't just believe what you hear, and don't disbelieve. Make yourself neutral, keep listening, it will bring good results, and there's no danger in it. The peril lies in believing too much in what you hear, or in disbelieving. Listen and contemplate. This is what practice is about. B. 
being a listener and being one who reflects on things. As you don't know yet whether the things you like and dislike are true or not, the Buddha said that for the time being you should keep listening. If you don't, you'll just follow your own opinions about things, and if you do that, then you'll develop wrong view, and your practice won't advance. The wise person is one who keeps looking, contemplating, continually reflecting. The true Dhamma is not something that can be communicated with words. You can't appropriate someone else's knowledge. If you take someone else's knowledge, then you have to meditate on it. Listening to someone else and understanding what they say doesn't mean that your defilements will come to an end. You have to take that understanding and then chew on it and digest it until it's a sure thing and really your own. In the mid-1970s, during the construction of a road up to the peak of Tamsangpet, Lung Po had amazed his disciples with his physical stamina. Within a short time, his health declined to the degree that he had to reduce the number of formal Dhamma talks he delivered to perhaps two or three discourses a month. He told his disciples to look on the bright side. If he gave too many talks, they might simply memorize his words and delude themselves into believing that they truly understood what they did not. Intoxicated by the Dhamma, they might neglect their own practice and get caught in lecturing others about inner peace, with their own minds still hot and confused. For his disciples, who looked forward to his talks so eagerly, it was not one of his most convincing arguments. On another occasion, Lung Po said that the task of the teacher lay more in providing supportive conditions for practice than in giving frequent discourses. He said that if you provide a bull with a meadow to graze in, then graze is what it will do. Its nature is to eat grass, and it doesn't need to be persuaded to do it. Any animal standing in the middle of a meadow and not grazing, he said, is no bull. Maybe it's a pig. In other words, a monk demonstrates his sincerity, his monkness, by the degree to which he takes advantage of the monastic environment. For those devoted to the training, formal instruction is only an auxiliary support. Similes, like keys for unlocking the truth. One of the most prominent features of Lung Po's Dhamma talks was the use of vivid simile. The untrained mind is like the water buffalo. Or another one. The different stages of meditation develop like the maturing of a mango. So many of Lung Po's talks are peppered with vivid similes, and it was this ability to draw analogies between abstract principles and everyday objects familiar to his audience that most clearly expressed his gift for communicating the Dhamma. It was his mastery of similes, more than any other rhetorical skill, that helped to make his talk so entertaining and lucid. Similes demystified the teachings for his audience, brought them down to earth and made them less intimidating, more immediate and practical. Lung Po was particularly skilled in choosing similes appropriate to his audience. Teaching the local villagers, or indeed the monks, most of whom came from farming families, the images were predominantly agricultural, 
They featured rice plants and buffaloes, fruit orchards and fishnets. Teaching members of the armed forces, the similes would often be martial or draw from the world of Thai boxing. For urban audiences, he would tend to use the objects around him that they could see and hear. A water kettle, a glass, a spittoon. While he used some similes over and over again during his teaching career, others occurred to him spontaneously in the midst of a discourse or while answering questions, as his mind sought a way to translate the truths he had experienced into terms his audience could understand. It was exhilarating for his listeners to see him effortlessly employ elements of the world around him to embody timeless truths. Animals of all kinds appear in these similes. Snakes, dogs, millipedes, water buffaloes, frogs and many more. Chickens were a particular favourite. Seeking to express how mistaken and ridiculous it would be for someone to rest satisfied with gaining an intellectual knowledge of Buddhist teachings and not to use it as an aid to abandon defilement, he compared it to someone raising chickens and eating the chicken shit rather than the eggs. The difference in behaviour between heedless and heedful monks, he described in terms of the differing behaviours of domestic chickens and the wild chickens that lived in Wat Bapong. Some of the most profound and beautiful of Lung Po's similes shed light upon experience in meditation. In one memorable image, he compared the mind existing in a state both at peace and yet primed to respond intelligently to conditions to that of a bell at rest. When a bell is rung and its natural silence disturbed by a forceful stimulus, the bell responds with a beautiful sound that, after a suitable duration, returns to silence. In the same way, he said, the mind should dwell with few wishes in the present moment. When a challenge arises, it should overcome that challenge with wisdom, and then, like a bell, return to a natural state of rest. Visible forms Sounds, odours, tastes, physical sensations and thoughts constantly impinge upon the mind, encouraging like, dislike, attachment. Lung Po explained how the stabilised mind, turning its attention to the three characteristics of existence, is unwavering in the face of sense contact. He said that impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not-self are like a seashore, and the sense objects surging into the mind are like the waves. It's like waves breaking on the shore. After a wave hits the shore, it breaks up and a new one appears in its place. Waves can reach no further than the shore. In the same way, sense objects can now go no further than our sense of knowing. Meeting the perception of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not-self, they split apart and disappear. Zen of a Kind In the mid-1970s, Lung Po acquired, as it were, another arrow to his rhetorical bow. He was much taken with Ajahn Buddhadasa's newly published translations of the works of the Chinese Zen masters Hui Neng and Huang Bo. Hui Neng, who was born in the 6th century, was the sixth Zen patriarch and author of the Platform Sutra. Huang Bo, who lived later in the 9th century, was the subject of the book Record of the Transmission of the Lamp. 
Luang Po found these texts gave him a new and fresh vocabulary to express the Dhamma. Western monks who had practiced in the Zen tradition added to his knowledge. The influence that these translated texts had upon the way he taught may be observed in a number of his later Dhamma discourses. There are, for example, a number of references to the mind, jitta, in terms comparable to how the phrase original mind is used in Zen texts. On one occasion, he compared the mind to a leaf that is naturally still but flutters about because of the wind of mental states. If it understood the nature of thoughts, the mind would stay still. This is called the natural state of the mind, and why we have come to practice now is to see the mind in this pristine state. Lung Po affirmed the liberation was known not through an escape from the world of convention, but from seeing it in its true light. It was the attachment to contingent realities as ultimately real that was the problem. This would seem to be his response to the Mahayana teaching of the identity of samsara and nirvana. Now, if we know conventional reality, then we'll know liberation. If we clearly know liberation, then we'll know convention. This is to know the Dhamma. Here, there is completion. In conversation, he would sometimes enjoy using the paradoxical phrasing of profound truths that is characteristic of Zen. On one occasion, he asked one of the Western monks to send a letter to Ajahn Sumedho in England. He said, Ask Sumedho, if you can't go forward, and you can't go back, and you can't stand still, what can you do? There's no evidence that Zen teachings modified Luang Po's understanding of Dhamma. It was more as if an artist at the height of his powers had found a new medium in which to express himself, a painter in oils exploring the use of watercolours. A characteristic flexibility of his mind allowed him to open up to this new way of presenting the Dhamma. He interpreted the texts he read in light of his own understanding, and then integrated them into the teachings which he gave to his disciples. In Conversation As Luang Po got older, more and more of his teaching was conducted informally. He no longer led the morning and evening sessions in the Dhamma Hall. He would spend many hours a day seated on a wide wicker seat in the flawed and open-sided space beneath his guddi. There, accompanied by a small number of attendants, he would receive a steady stream of lay visitors eager to make merit, to receive blessings, advice and inspiration. At night time, after the evening chanting and meditation session in the Dhamma Hall was over, more resident monks would make their way through the forest to his kuti. Most would stay until Luang Po retired for the night, some conversing with Luang Po, others sitting quietly in the shadows, enjoying the atmosphere and warmth and directness of his teachings. Some monks would massage his feet or his hands as he chattered and chewed betel nut. The monks considered the opportunity to attend upon Luang Po while he answered Dhamma questions to be a special treat. They particularly enjoyed the rare occasion when somebody came to argue with him. After one such occasion, 
a monk remarked to his friend that it was like watching a great master of martial arts effortlessly dealing with a clumsy opponent who foolishly believed that he was better than he was. Ajahn Chan cherished the memory of being part of such occasions. I'd feel this marvellous sense that I was participating in a long tradition of students sitting in the middle of the forest at the feet of their teacher, receiving words of wisdom straight from his mouth. It was the joy of being in the presence of someone I was convinced knew all that needed to be known. I could not imagine anyone being able to ask him any important question whatsoever about life that he would not be able to answer immediately and with absolute authority. It gave me an intense feeling of well-being. Answering questions and engaging in Dhamma dialogue was a mode of teaching that Lung Po seemed to particularly enjoy. On one occasion, following a session with a visiting Western monk from another tradition, some of the resident monks were unhappy with the visitor's aggressive manner. Lung Po said, No, it was good, very good. His questions were like a whetstone for my wisdom. The more he asked, the sharper my mind became. It delighted him when new answers arose spontaneously in his mind in response to unusual questions or to old questions from a new perspective. Lung Po was particularly skilled in distinguishing between different kinds of questions and varying his replies accordingly. He did not feel bound to always answer questions in the terms in which they were asked. When questions were poorly framed or sprang from a lack of information or from mistaken assumptions, he would answer by separating the various strands of the question, making necessary distinctions, and often dealing with the wrong thinking lying behind the question along the way. Some questions he threw back at the questioner with a counter-question, a method at which he was particularly adept. He would, for example, ask questioners wanting him to free them from some doubt or other, whether they would believe him if he told them the answer. When they hastily assured him that they would, he would tell them that in that case they'd be fools, because another person's words could never set one free. He would encourage questioners to look again at their reasons for asking. Some questions Lung Po met with silence. In these cases, the problem was often not so much with the question itself, but with the intention of the questioner. If the questioner was caught up in a serious delusion, he was likely to interpret any answer given to him in the light of his beliefs and become even more entrenched in wrong view. It was better to add no more fuel to the fire. If the questioner was asking questions from an impure motive, perhaps to try to gauge Lung Po's attainment, Lung Po would refuse to play along. If questioners asked about topics way beyond their level of practice, Lung Po would consider the questions to be idle ones, and he would refuse to add to the conceptual logpile already clogging the questioner's brain. Lung Po had more than one type of silence. Sometimes he would look blankly, as if he hadn't heard the question. The questioner would usually realize with a jolt that they'd asked something inappropriate and move on to another topic. If the questioner missed the hint and repeated the question, he would receive a fierce look, 
one that would surge up into his mind more than once in the following hours and days. In a particularly dire case, Lung Po might snub the person by turning to talk to someone else. In some cases, he would say more gently that the questioner was straying a long way from home. Why not ask something relevant to his present experience? A no-nonsense approach Every now and then, Lung Po would answer long involved questions with a single word or phrase. The brevity and the power with which he would express himself on these occasions could be shocking, and it could also be just what was needed to illuminate the confused mind of the questioner or the excessive elaboration of his questions. As Zhan Tian would report, it was an effective tool to use when conversing with people puffed up with their own intelligence and views. He wouldn't be bothered by questions, no matter how long and involved they might be. He wouldn't interpret or clarify issues like other people. He'd just cut the problems off and throw them away. He'd cut them into little bits, and that would be the end of them. Sometimes all he'd need was a single word or counter-question. Some people liked to go and listen when others were asking questions, but they'd be disappointed if they thought they were going to hear conventional answers. It wasn't so much that he gave practical advice on how to solve problems. It was more that he showed people how to correct their thinking and attitudes. When people came to him with doubts, they'd heard a monk say this and was it right and so on. He'd say that being aware of your lack of understanding of a matter and your desire to get an answer to it was more valuable than just adopting the opinions of another person. That's the way that he would answer questions. His answers were immediate and spontaneous, but they would always be spot on. Someone once asked him about Paticca Samapada, the teaching of dependent origination. Instead of answering in the usual way by going through all the different links, he asked the questioner whether he'd ever fallen out of a tree. You lose your handhold, he said and the next moment you're lying on the ground in pain. You don't know what went on in your mind as you fell. You didn't have any mindfulness. It was all too quick. All you know is that you're suffering now because you just fell out of a tree. The reason that you're suffering like this now is called specific conditionality. When he finished, the person who asked him was laughing with pleasure at his explanation. On one occasion... A diligent lay meditator asked him about her practice. Sometimes my mind becomes very concentrated, but there tend to be moments when suddenly my head bobs up and down. It's like I'm nodding, but I'm aware. There's mindfulness there. What's that called? It's called hitting an air pocket. It's what happens when you go up in a plane. Although Lung Po would on occasion include some technical detail in his explanations, he was more likely to reply to questions by encouraging the person to look into his own mind for the answers. He saw little value in spoon-feeding information that would not be absorbed. Questioners seeking more specific advice about different meditation techniques would often be cautioned that their problem did not lie in a lack of information, but in the attitude with which they were applying the information they already had. 
gaining ideas could sabotage the application of any method. The sharpness of his wit was well demonstrated with the visit of a certain Christian missionary who held the Buddhist teaching of not-self to be untenable. He was of the view that the knowledge of not-self presupposes a knower, and that that knower must be the self. The question he asked Lung Po was, Who knows not-self? Lung Po's immediate counter-question was, Who knows self? Without getting caught in philosophical wrangling, Lung Po was asserting that, if knowledge of not-self requires something that is not not-self, i.e. self as its knower, then the opposite must also hold true. Knowledge of self presupposes something that is not self as its knower. If the proponent of the self-view objects that the self knows itself, then the Buddhist may add that by the same token, knowing may be considered a naturally arising property of the not-self mind. Lung Po's three-word counter-question avoided the need for such a convoluted explanation. The most important point for Lung Po was that without a mind honed through meditation practice, there can be no resolution of the issue of self and not-self, only beliefs and speculation. This chapter has sought to bring Lung Po into a clearer focus. It has dealt with how he has appeared to the people around him, and the personality traits and qualities that impress themselves most upon them. In particular, emphasis has been laid on those virtues that enabled him to fulfill the role of the Kalyana Mitta to his disciples. He has been seen to inspire affection, love, devotion and respect, as well as fear and awe. He has been presented as a role model, encouraging his disciples to emulate his practice, he has been shown as Dhamma Gamo, one with a great passion for Dhamma, who, after being willing to put his life on the line in his own practice, exercised great patience and endurance in sharing what he had realized with others. There has been an extended account of his ability to communicate the Dhamma effectively in both formal and informal modes. All of these qualities and others will reappear throughout the rest of this book. But now, the focus will shift towards a more systematic presentation of Lung Po's teaching and training of his disciples, monastic and lay, in the development of the Eightfold Path.